Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Jillian Rowe. Hello. Jonathan Hall. Howdy, howdy. Will Button. What's going on, everybody? I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we are going to talk about how to get DevOps started in your company. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, That's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Now, you all talked about recently how to get started with DevOps, which I think is interesting, but I think companies these days are doing some form of, I think, what they would call DevOps, right, at at some level. So, or or maybe not, right? Maybe they're just, you know, they have a deployment strategy that, that involves a lot of prayer and wishing, so I'm curious, I mean, to what level do you can you say, hey, we're doing DevOps or we have some level of DevOps or does every company have some level of DevOps and it's just not organized? I, how, how do you how do you kind of evaluate that? And then we can start talking about, OK, how do we actually get disciplined on this stuff? Well, it's funny because I think that ties into last week's conversation of the DevOps manifesto. Is that what it was called? minimal uh, viable continuous delivery right yeah 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 i think that's like that's a starting point but to your point you know i think everyone thinks they're doing devops or they're doing their version of devops and so i think the i think it's worth talking about like defining what some uh some standard things you can do like to create like a little bit of a checklist to improve upon that. Cause I know I've worked with some companies in the past where, you know, they hired a DevOps team and started working with them. And, and by DevOps, they meant IT sys admins. So I think there's varying definitions there. So that might be a good starting point and just like defining the key things to start doing if you want to start moving down that path. I like the definition question because I think that, I mean, just like so many other terms, Agile and even Scrum sometimes, DevOps just really gets confused out there. You know, six people say DevOps and they all have six different, you know, each one has their own meaning of of what they're talking about. And I think DevOps is going to become like software engineering, you know, where it's like, you can say you're a software engineer, but, you know, okay, what do you do? Do you do web programming? Do you do, do you do mobile applications? Do you do like data visualization? Like what, you know, what do you actually do? I think DevOps will eventually go down that route. I'm doing my best to keep it from doing that, but the, the momentum is working <laughs> against me. <laughs> yeah, well, really? Agile, Agile went down that road, right? I mean, yeah. they did the Agile Manifesto in, what, 01? 2001, yeah. And then 
it kind of had this meaning of some fairly specific things. And, you know, a lot of the guys that adopted it were doing extreme programming. And then it kind of morphed into this. I mean, today, if you're doing agile, it means you're having stand up meetings and you pretend to do a retrospective periodically. So, I mean, DevOps, is that the same thing? Is Yeah, is it going to become the same thing where it's like, well, we know how to deploy our apps and we have a guy whose name is DevOps that makes the magic happen on wherever we're hosting our stuff. So shall we rename this podcast to Adventures in Whatever? <laughs> <laughs> Adventures in hand wavium. <laughs> I also think, you know, just to confuse the issue even further, I found it is quite different in teams or companies that are primarily focused on the cloud versus teams that are maintaining their own data center. Because obviously, if you're maintaining your own data center, you care about hardware and temperatures and, uh, you know, like racks and all that kind of thing. Whereas if you're on the cloud, part of that is you just don't ever even have to think about that. So I think maybe there's some overlap, rightly or wrongly, between uh, people doing DevOps and then the more traditional kind of IT internal data center uh, infrastructure support too. Gotcha. Adventures in air conditioning. That really might be it though. Yeah. I have a definition I like to use. It's not precise, but I think it helps to to narrow the conversation when I'm talking, when somebody asks me what I think DevOps means. And I, and it's just a one word definition that I think gets to the core of, of what DevOps is supposed to be or what it was originally. Like I said, it's not precise, but my definition is just cooperation. Cooperation between Dev and ops, and you can extend that to QA and SAC and biz and everything else, all the other buzzwords you stick in there. But I, I like that definition because it helps us remember the, the foundation of DevOps originally 10 years ago was this idea that Dev and ops were in this tug of war against each other, and that, that was silly, and that we should not do that. And they should cooperate, and they should, they should align their goals. And so I, I like to tell people, replace the word DevOps with the word cooperation in a sentence. And if it still makes sense, you're probably using the right definition of DevOps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you, if you take that to LinkedIn and you look at all the job descriptions and you see cooperations engineer and cooperations team, that's probably not really what they mean. <laughs> you know, you, you would never say, I'm done with my part. Now it's the cooperation team's job. So. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, I'm kind of liking that. <laughs> I know, I'm just thinking I might say that. You know, you never, you never know. <laughs> yeah, I also think a lot of the DevOps work is really centered around automations and this idea like of being able to tie things together. So, I mean, yeah, going back to the development and operations, you have to have some kind of bridge between those things. Or, you know, a lot of what I work on is creating sort of like integrations and automations between uh, deploying applications. So then I'm going and I'm talking to software engineers and data scientists and if there's an IT department, although that's becoming more and more rare in my work, you know, I go talk to them too, make sure everybody's on the same page and that we're getting everything out there and deployed that needs to that needs to be deployed. Which is again cooperation. I like that, Jonathan. I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I remember when I was talking to I talked to Donovan Brown a few times from Microsoft about this and uh he uh he mentioned that he thinks of it as what is it? It's like people, processes and something else like resources i can't remember but anyway so the idea is is yeah you get all of those things lined up to make you know you know your system work so those are the things that you're coordinating and yeah if you can get all those things pulling in the same direction you get all the people pulling in the same direction you get you get your processes set up so that it's easy to pull in the same direction right you design your your systems and resources so that they 
work with your processes and are easy for your people to do the right thing with. I, I think that's DevOps, right? So now you're starting to talk about how do we coordinate our cooperation, right? How do we put things together so that the cooperation makes makes it make sense? So how do you start doing this at work, right? Because you, I mean, it, it seems kind of pie in the sky for me to go to the CTO and say, so we need a cooperation, right? Oh, you just go talk to people, start drawing pictures on whiteboards, being like, hey, what, you know, what do you need? What's holding you up? What's holding up your work? What is something that you go home and you keep thinking about because, you know, because, you know, it's not quite right. And eventually it's going to blow up while you're on vacation. Like, like, what are these things that are happening and go and start start playing like whack-a-mole <laughs> whack-a-mole with the problems and fixing the things and moving on at least to me that's sort of what i've always tried to do does it work oh you know it's, it's, it's touch and go sometimes <laughs> but the effort is there yeah i think you know i, re- I really like this idea of cooperation because a lot of times that really is what it gets down to if people aren't willing to cooperate like nothing is ever really going to go forward which kind of brings me to a point that I've been thinking about a lot in that I've been kind of split in my business where I've been working mostly with people who are on AWS, but I've still been working with a few clients that have their own internal data centers. And getting the level of cooperation needed to get things done is like just so hard and so painful that I think I'm going to you know, close out these next few contracts with people in their own data centers and be like AWS or go home, guys. So what do you think about that? If you guys have sort of the same thing where you're interacting with maybe you know, the more like traditional IT approach where things tend to take quite a long time and you scope things out, you know, for like the next five years. But then the software team is over here being like, no, we need to be agile. We need to have continuous integration and deployment and all these things. And the IT is just losing their mind or is everybody kind of caught up with this and everybody's for the people. That sounds like the talk that kicked off the DevOps movement, right? The 10 deploys a day from, I can't remember who did that talk now, but you know, that's, that's the exact problem they were trying to solve uh, with that. Right. So you need to convince those IT departments to cooperate. Yes. We have tech problems, but we have way more people problems all the time. Always. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's like really in my experience, that's been the thing to focus in on to really start implementing this because a lot of times when you go talk to IT, they think they are cooperating. Like they think they are <laughs> doing the right thing and helping. And same thing with the software engineering teams. You know, they think that they're cooperating and and setting things up for a smooth turnover to IT or something. And it's not until you, you really like sit down and talk with them and say, hey, what sucks for you? And they start describing it. And then you go like, oh, that's a problem with you know, with this team over here. And so you go talk to that team, you know, okay, what sucks for you? And then they describe a completely different scenario and you really start focusing or narrowing down on the fact that team A has is working on certain assumptions that team B has different assumptions for. And that's really where the, the cooperation breaks down is they're trying to cooperate, but they don't really have a standard guideline on where the cooperation takes place. Yeah, and often not even it's not even so much well, I mean it is about the cooperation, but a lot of times it's not even having a shared vocabulary. You know, yeah. like so I actually worked in within a department that was founded within IT specifically so that the scientists like they would have a go between instead of going and talking to directly to IT people, they would come talk to us because it was like they literally did not speak the same language. Somebody had to translate between them. 
So, you know, just like the ways of working, the vocabulary, the terminology, everything was completely different between the two groups. So once we could kind of, you know, translate and be like, okay, this is sort of the state that we're working from. And sometimes it would be like one statement for one group and another statement for another. And everybody was kind of comfortable and felt like, okay, we know what the next step is. We know what needs to happen to move forward. Then all of a sudden, people were a lot more willing to cooperate. And uh, the kind of problems that they faced would just sort of, you know, go to the wayside. Yep. So I kind of want to get down to like concrete stuff. So you're talking about shared vocabulary as an issue. So does that mean you use like a wiki or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. We've used uh, wikis. Or use Jillian as a go-between. Yeah. A lot of times it's just me personally as a (laughs) go-between because, you know, some some of the engineers, I won't even let them talk to my scientists. (laughs) But, you know. (laughs) Wait, wait, where's this cooperation part going on? (laughs) Listen, there's cooperation. Everyone cooperates with Jillian. Yes, exactly. (laughs) This is is why I'm getting paid the big bucks, you guys. Often often academic research over there and why I still have so, so much student loan debt. But anyways, yeah, so, oh, man. So so basically what you're Uh, describing here, Jillian, is is we're, we're a traditional shop. We have dev and we have ops. We want DevOps, so we're going to put a new team in the middle called DevOps, and we're going to put Jillian on that team. Exactly. <laughs> Great. We figured it out. No, but not necessarily. Okay, so, you know, so as much as I am, like, I have daughters that like to shop, and absolutely, you all should come and, you know, and fund my dreams over here. No, what I really think is that, you know, kind of over time, we're getting more and more specific about, you know, about what it is that we're doing, and everybody is getting kind of more niched and more specialized. And each of these teams does have this very specific specialization and knowledge and that you do need to have people that have both sides. And oftentimes when you find that person who can translate between both sides, and by the way, it's not always me. Like, you know, sometimes I've worked with other people who have a really good idea of, you know, they they actually work in the lab. So they know exactly what is happening in the lab. And I have them come and translate for me. And then we go and, you know, gradually we spread this out and start translating for other people. So then you can kind of expand upon that to other teams. Let's think if you're doing... I don't know, some kind of like mobile application deployment and some sort of like IoT service where you're having actual physical devices. Maybe having somebody around who really knows about those physical devices and also knows about the IT could kind of sit in a place in the middle and just, you know, maybe, I don't know if I want to use the word referee, but that's all that's coming to mind right now. So I'm going to stick with it. Yeah, it's going to referee, you know, the two sides of that equation until everybody can kind of get on the same page. Right. So it sounds like what you're talking about is you're not always the go-between. What you're doing is you're facilitating the communication until it can happen without you, which I think helps. It also, one other thing you pointed out is sometimes you need an expert in some area of things. And so this isn't necessarily to break down silos. I mean, sometimes it'll do that, but it'll at least enable the communication between the people who have the knowledge of the people who need it. So I like the concrete suggestion that I think both Jill and Jillian and Will both uh, alluded to, which is ask teams what what sucks, <laughs> as Will put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty concrete, and uh, it, it's not always actionable because sometimes what sucks for one team is is pretty nebulous, or or it looks like they're blaming another team, but it's a good starting point. Yeah, one way to really drill into that, and I think I've referenced this book on on the podcast before, a book by Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. It's just a really, really good book because I've got my limited vocabulary and and all 50 of the words I know and just rehash them in different ways. But he's got some really good ideas in there to phrase the questions so that, you know, when you ask someone what sucks, you phrase it in such a way that they just really open up and and like 
uncover the the root cause of the matter, even if they haven't really solidified in their mind what that is. Yeah, I think that's great. I'm going to go read that. I mean, yeah, I found that often too. Sometimes it's just, it's this problem. And sometimes it's also like a curse of knowledge thing where one of the teams is so entrenched in it that they can't even quite verbalize it. Or maybe it takes like some time to tease out, or maybe it takes some time for the other people to understand. But once you can get at the root of that, like, what sucks, let's try to fix it. The progress is made very, very rapidly. One tool I really like to use to uncover the what sucks question is uh, the blameless postmortem. When I mean, I've joined teams and there have been times when I couldn't wait for something to break so that we could do a postmortem. <laughs> <laughs> because I find that you know you can get people who otherwise don't talk to each other in the same room in that situation, and they're and then they're both motivated uh, usually, unless this, the the whole company is really dysfunctional. They're really motivated to solve something because they just got called at three o'clock in the morning or their boss was yelling at them yesterday or whatever the situation. They're really motivated to keep that from happening again. So that's a that's a really good time to find motivated people. You know, that's the biggest problem, right? Not the not the tech, it's the people. Finding motivated people who are willing to work together to to solve problems. So that that's one tool I like to use for that. That's not to say don't just go ask what sucks, but also keep that that post boredom in your back pocket for the next time something crashes. I like that. I might just run around breaking stuff. <laughs> you know, move that process yep. along a little bit faster. Oh, the human chaos monkey. Yes. <laughs> I like it. That is me. Yeah, I, I do want to kind of push down a little bit on this, uh, just from the sense of we're talking about, hey, where are the problems or where, you know, where's the pain, things like that. But we talked about the uh, minimum CI or, or CD or minimum viable CD or whatever it was last time. And if that felt like a good place to start too, right? Where it was essentially, at least we have some goal of some place, some place we want to get to, right? Because some of those practices, like I, I've gone to a couple of different places, either as a contractor or as a developer full time. And one of the first things that I lean into is getting CI and CD set up, right? As just, as just a way to get rolling because DevOps is essentially which dev is going to run the op script to get the thing deployed, right? <laughs> and then who's going to stay up all night fixing it once it's busted? So by by pushing some of that into a process where we get early warning that, hey, if you deploy right now, you're going to be up all night is is kind of a baseline thing that I've gotten used to, right? And then I don't have to tell my wife, yes, I'm going to be in my home office. No, don't bother me. I might yell at you and it won't be your fault, <laughs> Right. Because because work sucks right now. And so is, is there kind of a list of things that I mean, we talked about the minimum viable CD. Is that a good place to go? Or is there an even more minimal list of things that is just like, hey, do this first and then do this second. And if that's the case, then the other question I have is, how do you go and get buy in from the people above you? Because my process is generally, hey, I'm going to do this. And then by the time they come back and they say, hey, let's talk about it, I go, oh, it's already done. Don't worry about it. We're just going to go with it. I think, yeah, yeah so I definitely agree with you from like a technical standpoint, just starting with CI, CD, let's get this deployed, make sure, you know, it doesn't break. Again, this kind of concept that we were talking about, you should be able to make changes and have a reasonable degree of confidence that it's not going to ruin your weekend or whatever is happening. And then, yeah, that's my favorite method too, is just kind of go and do it and act like it's no big deal. And like, of course, this is what we're doing now. Like, why would why wouldn't we do this? And uh, just hope that I don't get in trouble. What's funny to me is that I almost 
never get in trouble for it. And I've done this. I've actually built features that were never asked for that I knew would save people time. Right. And then afterward, it's like, so I told you that we ought to do this. And yeah, here it is. And then, yeah, people are like, this is really nice. That's that's harder to do with something as big, depending on the company you're in, as big as CD. I think you can also yeah. do with CI. I mean, you can, you can pretty easily set up, I mean, on any modern v version control system, GitHub or anything, you can just set up a GitHub action to run some CI. Maybe it runs a linter or nothing else to start with. Mm -hmm. but you could do that in 20 minutes and, yeah. and, and say, yeah, I already did it. When it comes to CD, you probably need some buy-in from whoever controls your your Kubernetes cluster or or AWS or wherever you're deploying things, it's a little bit more involved. So you probably need some buy-in from someone unless you happen to be the, the ops team doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah it depends a lot on how much control you have on that process, for yeah. sure. My, my general approach is to get it to the point where my developers have the control to fix production problems as quickly as possible so that, so that they can deploy and potentially roll back and debug production problems as quickly as possible. That's sort of my the first step towards DevOps, I guess, if you will. That that's my first big target. That's my first big milestone. And that and, and there's different ways to get there. It depends on what kind of technology you're using and, and how big your team is and, and all those mm -hmm. things and and, and all, many other variables. But once you get there, then it's easier to start filling in the gaps with better automation, do some team reshuffles if it makes sense, because some people are idle now or whatever. That's what I always start with. Yeah. I found another good thing to start with is uh, what can we get rid of. Like, is there anything here that we don't need or that, you know, because technology changes so quickly, is there maybe a better tool that does this thing that is not us writing code? Because that would be fantastic. Like, get rid of as much code as possible and start seeing, you know, like what can happen there. Uh, you know, so, for example, I used to do a lot of kind of the authentication things in a bit of a hacky way. And then uh, I don't know exactly when and we were talking about this earlier. I went and looked at the Auth0 website and saw that they were completely free for the first 7000 users. And I just moved like all my clients onto there and pretty much everybody else. And now I'm like, no, don't even bother to try to write this yourself. Like, just go sign up there. Like, it's so easy and it handles everything for you. You know, so I'll always try to go through and find maybe are there a couple steps like that of things that we could offload onto somebody else. Yep. I, I like that for sure. Especially from the standpoint, I mean, you mentioned Auth0 and we were talking before the show and I was like, well, I can roll my own authentication in 20 minutes. But the issue is, is I can't roll an authentication that does everything Auth0 does in 20 minutes, right? Where I can say, okay, now go turn on Facebook login or Google login or GitHub login or whatever, right? And and that's what I'm go looking at it and going, oh, wow. And so it's the same thing. It's like, well, you know, do I want to go set up a Jenkins server or do I want to just, you know, go roll out with CircleCI or something? When I, when I do the deployments, do I want to manage them with this or this or this? Or do I want to use something like JFrog to build the artifact that just puts it out there? Or can I do that with my CircleCI and, and make it easy? And, and I really, I really like that because just to give another example, for a long time, the shows on devchat.tv, which is now Top End Devs, they were all hosted on a custom-built Rails app. And uh, it did everything I wanted, except maintain itself <laughs> <laughs> right not the building that gets you it's the maintaining oh that's the right worst. and so I, I turned into this maintenance engineer for it right it was like oh i need to tweak this because it doesn't do exactly what it needs to or somebody's making a, an assumption about what it does and so i need it to handle this other edge case and so i was the edge case guy right and yeah you know it 
so so yeah, if somebody else has a solution that's just going to do the thing for me, that's really, really nice. And so if you can offload it, outsource it, not have to be the person behind it, I really, really like that point, Jillian. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of uh, like freeing up mental space. I think especially since the pandemic started and my kids are doing, they were doing homeschool for a long time and then they were doing hybrid and then some weeks they were doing hybrid and some, and you know, this, this has been going on for like a year and a half and they're finally back in school full time. But I think like literally anything I could push off in terms of, do I really need to be the one doing this? No, I don't. And that included stuff, you know, like website or things that I am perfectly capable of doing myself. And there is no way that I would have paid, you know, like even like, I'm kind of cheap. So even if it was like 10 bucks a month, I probably wouldn't have done it. But now I'm like, you know, take my money so that I don't have to think about this anymore. I'm a huge fan of outsourcing anything possible. But my general rule of thumb is until it costs about 25% of a person's salary, outsource it. And that's just a rule of thumb, of course. There are exceptions all the time. Just don't that's waste good. Your, I like having a number don't that. Waste your time with Don't mm-hmm. waste your time with VMs or with a database or whatever. If AWS can do it for you, for goodness sake, they're so much cheaper than paying a dev to... to to waste mental bandwidth on that stuff. No, I have to optimize it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that that page could have loaded 0.03 seconds less. That's right. I'm going to hire somebody to go and wave a fan at it. (laughs) Cool it off. Adventures in air conditioning. That's right. I like Jillian's idea too. I'm going to outsource my kids. Uh, You know, once Uh, they hit a certain age, they're all going to go into singularity in the internet anyways. That's true. I have outsourced my 14-year-old a lot of time to uh, Disney+. Plus. She'll just sit there and watch whatever's <laughs> on it. Um, I outsourced my 10-years-old. Whenever she has math homework, I'm like, I'm not doing that. And I, I taught her how to go check it with IPython now. Oh, really? And if, yeah, apparently her, her teachers might have some things to say to me about that. But I'm like, I'm not doing that. The computer does that for you. <laughs> nice. So, but I, I do like that, you know, just what, what are we doing that we don't have to do that we can outsource? Um, I think there's a, a follow-up conversation that needs to be had in some organizations there too. And I've seen this most commonly in the larger organizations, you know, whenever you have people, whenever you talk with people and you're like, yeah, we're just, we're going to use this third-party service for this. Some people tend to get a little paranoid and think, oh my God they're trying to take away my job so they can fire me. And so it's really important to have that conversation up front. Like, and the way I've done it is to say, look, I know there are 15 million things on your backlog that currently you can't get to. So if we get rid of this one thing that we can pay someone else to do, it lets you focus on those. You know, we're not trying to get rid of you and nobody's trying to make it so we can fire you without impact. It's just to, allow you to focus on things that are actually more important to us. Mm-hmm. And you could also That's put right. in whatever your, your rule of thumb is, say, and when this bill exceeds X amount, we'll look about putting it back on your plate and hiring some help to help you with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is if you have 15 million things on your backlog, you're never going to get to 14,999,000 of them. And the, and 990 of the other thousand of them are you're going to wind up pulling them out of the backlog because you don't need them anymore because your priorities are going to change. So just be aware that that's, that's just life. Yeah. But, but I like that too, right? It's like, Hey, look, yeah, we kind of need this because usually the things you can outsource are the things that are common problems for a lot of people like auth zero, for example, right? Pretty much every, uh, every system that has to maintain some kind of user data needs authentication. And so there are solutions out there for it. Right. But, 
if if there's a solution out there for your entire app, <laughs> then they're a competitor. They're not a resource for you. So, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so there's going to be some common code. There's going to be some uncommon code that you have to work on to Will's point, right? So yeah, let's focus on that stuff. The stuff that's going to move the needle that we can't spin up in a day by having you spend the time integrating this other system. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for just uh, kind of keeping almost constant conversations going about like, what are the priorities? Should these be the priorities? And like a very like non-judgmental, because I know, you know, like again, some people, they get worried about their jobs or I think especially like if you're just starting out, like it's the whole thing is, you know, not know, not ever knowing what you're doing from day to day to day is kind of terrifying. So, you know, maybe talk those people down a bit. So just kind of keep it as like, hey, you know, we're just trying to keep things moving forward and what are the priorities and the priorities might change. And that doesn't mean that you it did a bad job or anything like that. It's just it's technology and it moves along and it moves along very quickly. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I want to point out as far as your point, Jillian, and then Will's point about it is you're trying to outsource my job. Well, if it's faster and cheaper to hire off zero to run it than to have you build it, and and that's your entire job, then your your uh, job security is pretty fragile. And to be honest, most co- the company is there to actually provide a solution and make a profit and do these other things, actually take care of its customers. It's not there to provide you a job, right? That's not why the company was created. And so that's another thing just to keep in mind. But but I promise you, if if they're out there and they're ambitious, and that's like every company ever, except for maybe like the Fortune 500 ones that just want to kind of coast at like a zillion dollar profit or <laughs> however much money they make, they're going to have work for you to do as long as you're talented enough and driven enough to go do it. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that brings us back full circle to the going around and actually talking to other people. That was so huge for me in my career when I first started out. And it wasn't anything that I even did like intentionally like, oh, I'm going to go do this because this is going to be great for my career. Probably mostly just because I'm really nosy and I wanted to know what other people are doing. So I went (laughs) and I talked to the other people. And then I was like, oh, you're having this problem. I'll bet I could fix that. And, you know, so over time, it's even if some of my job got outsourced, which yeah, it's been over 15 years. So it, most of it has been outsourced at some time or another. There was still always something else for me to do. Or, you know, somebody else would come up to me and be like, oh, great, you're free. You know, come deal with this thing for me. So yeah, don't don't worry about that too much. I hope I didn't freak anybody out too much. We're not trying to outsource your jobs, you guys. No, no but I think there's a valid point there for people who are just looking to get into DevOps and even software engineering to a certain extent that a large part of the job is communication. It's not about sitting in a dark room in front of a keyboard, just typing code all the time. You, you actually have to talk Aww. to people a lot. <laughs> Wasn't it Martin Fowler Aww. who said, I think he said, any fool can write code a computer can understand. It takes a good programmer to write code that a human can understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, software, this whole industry, it's, it's, I think a lot of people get into it thinking that they're just going to sit in a dark corner and, and uh, in their mother's basement or something and, and become a billionaire. You have to talk to people. It's, it's all about people. Time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software. And our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment. 
along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customer peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage plans start from as little as $4 per month with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. I think, though, it's interesting where that idea came from, right? Because I think software development has come a long way since like the 90s, where people were working on mainframes and it was, hey, I'm going to build this service. You're going to build this other service. So-and-so is going to build this other service. And then we're going to kind of mash them together sometimes in frightening ways. And then, and I say this having worked in ops in a data center in the 90s and early 2000s. But, you know, so we would monitor all these services that ran. And so somebody could actually get away with sitting in their office in the dark and not talking to people and just providing an interface. But that's not the way software development, that's not the way apps work anymore, especially with the cloud where it's, hey, we've got all of these myriad services that are provided. And they all do all these different things. And so we need everything to coordinate nicely with each other. And we need to be able to provide timely responses to our customers. And people people have these expectations now. And so if you can't work with your team, if you can't collaborate with other people, you are handicapped in, your, in doing your job. And that, that's just the way it is. I mean, there are some jobs where it's, hey, I've kind of got a standard pattern here that I can work off of and deploy and mostly work on my own. But then you're providing services for other people and you have to be able to communicate with them. I just I don't see a way anymore in development, DevOps, whatever you want to call your job, because sometimes the lines get blurred there, right? I just don't see a way that you can do this anymore without having to collaborate with someone somewhere and being able to communicate well with them. It's it's not enough anymore to get a spec sheet and just go and work 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 it off. Yeah, absolutely. That is so important. I mean, now like whenever I'm working with my students, the very first thing that I make them do is like they write some code or they do a project or an analysis or whatever. And then I get them started on uh, like one of these documentation packages like JupyterBook or the R Markdown one or so, you know, and all the languages have these ones where essentially you do this idea of literate programming where you're supposed to like really explain what you're doing. And the whole point of that is that you should be able to present what you did to somebody else. And it's to kind of foster those communication skills, draw diagrams, um, explain what you did, because if nobody knows what you're doing, that is that is definitely not good for your job security. It's actually the opposite of job security. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, uh, it was funny. My, I have a brother and a cousin that were going to different universities here in, in Utah or in the West. One of them was an online university and they kind of catered to Western, it's Western Governors University is where my brother was going, but they were both doing computer science. And they're like, they're like, you've been programming forever and you have all the podcasts and you've talked to all these people and, you know, what's the most important thing that you can learn? And, and I looked at them and I was like, I was like, you're not going to believe me. And they were like, well, yeah, we will. What what's the most important thing you can learn? I said you have to learn to work with other people, and it really is. I mean, beyond being technically competent, and that's not really a high bar anymore. You have to you have to be able to communicate with people. If they don't know what you're doing, they're going to fire you. And if you don't play well, if you don't play nicely with others, they will also fire you. Yes. Yeah, they'll get tired of your crap and they'll fire you. Yep. I've said that recently uh, in several conversations about how to hire people. 
you know, I have never fired somebody because they were incompetent. I have fired people because they didn't get along with other people. You know, when yeah, it, you true. Know, I, I think we're optimizing for the wrong things when we're hiring is basically the point. You know, we're, we spend all this time doing technical tests and quizzing each other on quick sort and, and how to do Terraform, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But that's not the hard part. <laughs> that's not, I've never fired somebody because they didn't know how to use Terraform properly. I have fired somebody because they, they were racist to their colleagues or because mm-hmm. they refused to, to come into work and they wouldn't explain why. You know, it, it was it was those people problems that I've, I fired people for. Yeah, yeah. Well, and those I are mean, the headaches that get caused. It's I'm tired of dealing with your crap, not I'm tired of dealing with your incompetence. Sorry, Jillian, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, like, I don't think I'm the most uh, technically proficient person, especially in a couple of areas like algorithm development. I don't like it. I'm terrible at it. But I actually still have people come to me for it specifically because they like working with me. And I'm like, you should go talk to this other guy. He's he's like way smarter and considerably better at this thing that you need. And they're just like, no, no, we're we're not doing that. So, yeah, never underestimate the power of people skills and just go in and get along with people and just be nice. So if I mean, they'll leave me alone. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> Everybody will leave you alone, including the people with the bank accounts. Yeah, that's how that works. Oh, yeah. Just to echo what you said, uh, Chuck. There, you know, it wasn't that long ago when when a single person, forgetting mainframes, but a single person was writing big pieces of software. Oh yeah, but I'm thinking of like John Carmack, who wrote Doom essentially by himself. He, he wasn't literally mm-hmm. by himself, but he did the core of it by himself. That's yeah. a pretty expensive, pretty sophisticated game to to have in one person's brain. And, you know, before that, you know, the people who wrote Pac-Man, you know, it was just one guy who wrote that in a weekend or something like that. You know, it, you can't do that. You can't you can't write a game that you expect to be popular by yourself, let alone a microservice or a, a, a suite of microservices that you're going to actually make money from. Yep. Well, Mark Zuckerberg just quit going to classes and built Facebook. Yep. But that's still a people platform like that. It's the whole point of that. Plat- well, Okay, we could have a lot of conversations about, about the point of Facebook. But. I was about to make a comment. I'm not going to talk about Facebook. I saw yeah. everyone's mic come off and mute. Oh, oh, maybe that's well, initially when he built it, he was only interested in meeting half of the population at Harvard. Right. Yeah, and, and having a nice ranking system for them too, you know, some machine learning or computer vision or whatnot. All right. <laughs> Definitely should be. Yeah, but out. in order for it to be what it is now, how many people have to collaborate to build it? I mean, that's the point, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Is in order to make it what it is now, and yeah, we could go into, you know, some of the ethical issues around how they do specific things, whatever. But the point is, is that in order for it to become what it became, it needed more people able to work together in these ways. And also that the people who didn't build it could understand it and be like, oh yeah, this is the thing that I want to use and that I want to go tell my Mm -hmm. friends about and get them interested in it. Yeah, picture my grandkids on there. Google estimates between twenty five and thirty thousand software engineers at Facebook. I don't know how they're busy. I mean, it's not that big of a platform, is it? <laughs> 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 That's kind of a meta question anymore. Oh. <laughs> we need sound effects on the podcast. <laughs> there are sound effects. Here, let me see if I can run one real what? quick. <laughs> there we go. Or there's this one. Do only you hear it? I don't hear it. I don't hear it either. Oh, they're just preview. Here we go. (laughs) Yes. Oh, like the 90s sitcom ones? Let's get some of those going. We need a laugh track. Finally, somebody laughs at my jokes. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Anyway, so so you, you get the point, though, right? So... 
anyway, it's yeah. I mean that that is what it is. It's uh, anymore. You have to be able to work on a team. Um, now, do we want anything techie with people beyond CI or anything uh, on the techie side of things between beyond CI CD or is that just getting too much into people's specific scenarios? Use AWS. You know, <laughs> that was my self-serving well, comment of the day. <laughs> Are you a shareholder? How is that self-serving? Because I work on AWS. People need to be using AWS for me to be making money. Pretty soon our podcast well, is going to be like NASCAR. We're all going to have like different jackets with <laughs> logos on them. <laughs> well, it I, I help think... on a podcast, Will. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think, <laughs> I think to Jillian's point, though, I mean, even if, let's say I'm building like a custom Rails app, right? And so I'm going to be d- deploying it to uh, Google Cloud Platform or to AWS or something else, right? On EC2 or what have you, right? I mean, that that doesn't necessarily matter, but the the one thing that's kind of interesting about that point is, okay, what are the capabilities here, right? Jonathan brought it up earlier. Amazon runs PostgreSQL just fine, right? And so I don't have to go and scale it. I don't have to fiddle with it. I don't have to fuss with it. It just does it, right? And so if if we're looking at that as just, you know, a possibility, then then you start looking at, okay, well, we're we're custom loading PostgreSQL on a virtual machine or a Docker image somewhere, and we could just let the cloud platform run it, right? And so that that's where I think DevOps really starts to pay off, is where you start saying, oh wait, there's this other thing, right? Maybe it's uh, functions, right? So Azure Functions, Lambda Functions, I think Google Cloud has them too, right? Where it's hey, you know, instead of trying to custom build this big fat thing that does this big fat thing now that we have our database on aws we can tell the land the lambda function to just connect to the aws database and do its thing right because the database isn't unique to our app anymore right It, it can be used by anything in aws and so then you start having those conversations and i think you start getting into some of the devops uh capabilities that way and saying okay well we're going to go beyond sort of the the generic monolithic app or the the generic uh, service-oriented app and actually say, hey, we're going to take advantage of some of these solutions because they're going to save us money, they're going to get us more reliability, they're going to get us more speed, they're going to get us more whatever we care about. But I think the baseline here is, A, having that CI-CD setup so that you know that, hey, when something works, it's going to have, you know, it's going to get where it has to go. And then the other thing is, is understanding what the capabilities and options are so that you can really take advantage of what's offered to you. Yeah, I agree. Just undertaking that exercise is going to spell out where you want to go next, which may be different Mm -hmm. for every company, but that's going to like expose what you want to know. Yeah. And also understanding, you know, even like the kind of workloads and things that you have. So, you know, for example, if you tend to have very spiky workloads, it's very difficult to have an in-house auto-scaling cluster. I don't know how you would do such a thing. I'm sure somebody somewhere has thought about that significantly and has a really good answer. But, you know, on the cloud, it's much easier. You just say minimum one, maximum of a million or mm-hmm. whatever, and it scales it for you automatically. So that, I mean, that could be a really huge, uh, you know, if you're considering cost versus benefit, you're saying, well, we don't have to maintain this data center with the maximum number of nodes that we need all the time because most of the time we don't need that many. We need like, you know, some fraction of them. Then that can, uh, you know, then that can really start to influence your decision and things too. Yep. The other thing is, is 
and and this is kind of back to Jillian's question of what what can we get rid of just because you have the capability in your cloud provider which ones do we want to continue to run the way that we're running them and why right because you know maybe it it isn't economical maybe it doesn't make sense to go and use one of the options that they offer i think the load balancing and scaling is kind of an obvious win if you have intermittent inbound traffic but maybe you don't maybe it's an internal app and it has pretty steady usage you know so then you're just like well, we're not even going to turn it on right because it doesn't matter so so being able to kind of pick apart the nuance and say hey it makes a lot of sense to use this here makes doesn't make a lot of sense to use it over here so we're not going to pay for it agreed we're just going to make this one really snappy and route all the ceo's traffic over there so he thinks we're doing a good job right <laughs> Ooh, i like that didn't volkswagen try something like that with their exhaust <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i think there's actually been a couple companies that have tried something along those lines <laughs> yep yeah you hook the machine up to it and it says Oh. <laughs> so another piece that I think is really important if you're trying to do DevOps is your observability tools, whether that's monitoring, alerting, mm-hmm. log files. You know, those are really essential things that need to be accessible to your developers, not just your operations people. And, you know, if, if, if I'm a developer and I write something that crashes, I need to be able to see those logs. Uh, it's not good for me. I, I shouldn't have to call somebody or, or wait until tomorrow for somebody else to read those logs for me. So Yeah. Yeah, site reliability is huge. And I mean, it's hard to build all that stuff in yourself. Like if you're thinking like, okay, we're going to have data center and a team in-house that manages it. But once you start to get into all that kind of thing, it's it's an undertaking. Whereas on the cloud, it's a button. It's a button that I press. <laughs> yeah. But so beyond that, I mean... Cloud, Jillian? Hmm? Are you a fan of using the cloud then? Is that, is that what it yes, is? I am. I really, I'm all about using the cloud. I really like... Which uh, is your um, I don't really care, but like, I'm on AWS. <laughs> oh, that was an excellent comedic timing. Good job there. AWS is my favorite. AWS, if you would like to sponsor me, I will say that all day long. <laughs> I'm going to get addicted to the soundboard. The soundboard is great. You're going to have to get cut off at some point. Boy, that one runs runs forever. Anyway, I, one thing that when Jonathan, when you were talking about it, though, not just the site reliability tools that are provided by, like, say, AWS, but I was thinking more along the lines of like the Sentry or um, what are some of the other ones? Raygun sponsors some of our shows. Airbrake. They're all terrific, by the way. Uh, New Relic, I think, has some some stuff on there. They also do performance. I, I think all of those do performance. But, you know, just making sure that that's in there and that developers know how to uh, integrate that, right? So that anything that's not a standard sort of error state, they can trigger it if they need to, right, to get more information out, which is one thing that I find that people tend not to do with those tools that they're really good for. Yeah, I've never been, I've never joined a team or, or worked with a team that already had that set up. But by the time I leave, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I, I t- that's another one I tend to push. So I push the the testing, make sure we're testing, and then make sure we have CI, and then make sure we get CD set up. And then this is another one, right? Because it's like, hey, if it breaks in production, you really don't want to let me onto the production machine and let you know grind through the logs. I don't want to do it anyway because grinding through logs sucks but yeah 
So having those tools in place and then, yeah, having people know how to use it, it's where it's, hey, we got to an unexpected place. So we're either going to raise a specific error, right, that we created or we know how to go and, you know, smack air brake on the head and say, hey, guys, uh, there was a problem here. Yeah, those tools are worth a lot, a lot more than their subscription. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've also got, like you said, the logging where it's like the Kibana. Is it Kibana? Yeah. Or Logstash. Kibana. Yeah. There, there are a bunch of them. I think Logstash is paid. LogRocket is another one that kind of does both that and the error monitoring. But the nice thing there is that, again, if something does happen, I don't have to go grind through the logs, right? I can just get into the interface and search it. Yeah, I found that's Suspicious. another really big place, too, that um, people don't always know that these solutions are out there and will try to build things from scratch. Like I had somebody trying to build... Uh, kind of like a dashboard for how their database was doing. And I was like, we can set this up in Kibana. Like there's, you know, there's like a plugin when we just point it and then it goes up and then you have like a nice pretty dashboard and, you know, then it makes people's bosses happy with them mm-hmm. and then they're happier with me. So then that leads Data you know, right dog back does to that too. outsourcing. Yeah. I mean, there, there are all kinds of tools for this stuff. Definitely. You know, the alerting through pager duty or what one of my former coworkers formerly called NAG iOS or Nagios. <laughs> I remember setting up Nagios. That was a chore. These days, it's one of those things that I would not do again. And, and unless yeah. I grew to the point where it was a huge project, I would just outsource that. Yeah. Well, the thing that the thing that's nice is that, and I haven't set up Nagios for years and years and years, but you actually had to customize a lot of stuff in the agent. Whereas with like Datadog, most of the stuff I wanted to know, I just installed the agent and then customized the UI on the web. But yeah. And with with like Docker and Kubernetes and stuff where you actually will go and like kill and replace containers, you actually need the centralized logging. Definitely. Mm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what That's happened? Like I don't know. It's gone. It's over here. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah you, I bet you only do that logging. once or twice. Oh, you know, it take, sometimes it takes me a while to learn, but. Yeah, so I've been getting really into the, you know, as long as we're naming tech here, the Prometheus and Grafana stack, because that seems to have kind of won in the Kubernetes space. Uh, whereas, mm-hmm. like, I, I'm still using the Elk stack for just, like, straight up logging and some database stuff. But that that is really nice. Like, if you're using, if you're using Kubernetes to do the rancher with the, like, the Prometheus and the Grafana, that is, like, such an excellent thing to be able to hand off to your developers or data science team, because it just gives, you know, so much, like, control and kind of like peace of mind as well that it's not just this black box that you've deployed and it's like oh like you know some of my clients don't know what kubernetes is and they don't care what the different cluster types are and you know nor should they but at least they can have this kind of nice thing in front of them that shows them at any given time that something you know that they have i'm not like i'm not to go between there but they can just go log in and see like what's what's happening on the system is it up is it down you can go see yep I like Rancher too. I want to do a Rancher for Data Scientist course. I did like a little Portainer one once and that was fun. Where's that cricket sound effect? I don't think I have one. I just put that in. <laughs> I can I can add more in there. I just I haven't really played with it. So. Next time we'll have cricket. Yep. By the way, if anybody has like funny sound effects, quotes, whatever that you think we ought to put in, I am totally open <laughs> to adding those <laughs> to the soundboard. And I think it's just the host that runs the soundboard. I don't think you guys have access to it. I don't it, think so. I see it. When I, when I host my own, I've seen it. I've never used it, but I don't see it here. So I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. So there's Studio, which shows where you guys are all at. Media, which is where that is at. And then chat. Yeah, I don't see media. So. I just see Studio and chat. It's probably um, that way. Probably. <laughs> yeah, that might be for the best. <laughs> I was just thinking like. <laughs> yeah. 
how dangerous that would be. Somebody would be getting cut off pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> so one other thing that I just kind of want to push on, because I did mention that I am more of an ask for forgiveness person, but I imagine that some folks listening to this are in an organization where asking for forgiveness is either not an option or, you know, may actually get them in trouble. And so if if you have to ask for permission first, I could see some non-technical folks over them or even CTOs. I've, I've worked with CTOs as contractors that, you know, I was like, so they saw me checking in tests for my dev work and going, why are you spending time writing tests? We're not going to pay you for that. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> you, uh, that's you when want you learn your code to work, right? But the point is, is that sometimes it's hard to explain to them what the benefit of CI is or what the benefit of, you know, whatever that next step is, the benefit of moving on to a different piece of the cloud offering or things like that. So if you're trying to make one of these steps happen, where you you see a clear benefit, but you're not quite sure that they're going to see it that way. How do you start to approach that so that they'll at least consider what you're offering, even if they don't take you up on it every time? I think you kind of nailed on or touched on it earlier whenever you pointed out that the goal of the business is to make money from the customers. So anything that you want to do or change in the, the infrastructure, I think a good start is to to articulate how the customers who are giving your business money are going to benefit from this. Right. It's all math. Yeah. A lot of it is, is dollars or, yeah. you know, yeah, dollars, time risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think those are the ones that kind of hit me. Right. And so, yeah, then it's okay. Well, and that this is how I sold the test, right. Was effectively, well, I know how this all works, but if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, then you're going to have to find another contractor. And the tests really help them come in and know, hey, all this stuff works this way. Because they can go look at the tests and see what assumptions I'm testing or what output I'm testing or what, you know, how I'm characterizing the code, not just from the code, but from the tests, right? And so it's maintainability. You know, it'll save you all of this effort down the line. And I'm not always going to be your code guy, right? I mean, that's kind of how contracting works. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, and that, that's usually, so that's risk, right? Yeah. There are so many reasons to write tests. Yeah. Or any of these other practices we might choose to do, CI or CD or, or whatever. Right. Honestly, I, I've, I've gotten more cynical and jaded in my, in my old age to the point that if I had somebody having that conversation with me, I would probably quit. I'm about to that point. I know not everybody is in a position to do that, and I and I understand if you aren't. But I I actually had a job two years ago, three years ago. It it wasn't that exact same conversation, but it was the same level of misunderstanding. And I stuck it out for about two weeks, and at the end, I just I left. I mean, in in that case, the CTO would not let us run the tests in GitLab CI because it cluttered his GitLab CI dashboard. Oh no. <laughs> he, 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 I should he liked, laugh. I should cry. He, he liked the green check marks every time the build succeeded. And 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 so he only wanted it when you ran it manually to do deploy. He didn't want tests or a test suite that might fail for a pull request because it would clutter that dashboard with, with red X's. <laughs> Listen. So you know, I, I did try to stick it out. I, I, I gave it two weeks. I talked to the CEO. And at the end, I was like, this is not going to work. And, and I left. But 
if you are not in a position to leave uh, and find a better job, then I, what you, you know, the best you can do is try to reason with them, explain the reasons. It's unfortunate to do that because the reasons are so well established in in the public, but you have to. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's funny too, though, is that I'm so I am such a skunkworks guy that I have had I have had them tell me, no, you can't do CI. And so what I did is I installed Jenkins on my computer on my local machine and just ran it there. And I so CI would just yeah. come up for me, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I'm not encouraging anybody <laughs> to go against your boss, but I mean, sometimes the benefits are just that way. And the other thing is is that a lot of times when I'm talking about the risk mm-hmm. to me or my career, it's I know that this is going to safeguard me or safeguard the team from making specific mistakes that will blow back on us. Yeah. The, the truth is, if, if somebody's micromanaging to that level, they have no business managing technical people. I mean, you, you ought to trust your technical people to do their True. job well. I mean, you, you would not micromanage your plumber and say, wait, why are you flushing that toilet? I just asked you to fix the leak. Fix the leak. I didn't ask you to test that the leak is actually fixed. I mean, no, nobody would do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's essentially what they're telling you. It's like, oh, don't write tests. You know, I'm not paying you to write tests or I don't want you to run CI. You know, th- this is how I do my job. I want you want me to do my job or not. This is how I do it. Uh, you can take yeah. it and leave it. That, that, that's my view. Yeah, I get leverage in your position. career. Yep. I don't know. Get Any other thoughts for presenting it to your to the stakeholders, to your boss or whatever? I mean, if you're going find the what, reasoning find, route... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, find what pain your boss feels. That This tactic works when you're trying to convince a team or, or other your peers mm-hmm. as well. What pain are they feeling? And then find a DevOpsy way to approach that pain. Maybe it's not the thing you want to do today. Maybe it's not CI that fixes their problem, but maybe it's postmortems or maybe it's whatever other tool you might have in your toolbox. But what pain do they feel today and solve that problem your way or offer to? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's an easier way than trying to solve the problem you want to solve today because they don't care about it right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also really easy. Like, you know, we get kind of focused on, uh, you know, our own sort of careers and what we're doing and get a bit of tunnel vision. But, you know, other people are working on other problems and, you know, the company or the business or whatever, and they might not be focused on those. So it might really just, again, be go have a conversation and, you know, maybe your boss seems like kind of he's micromanaging. Maybe he's getting a lot of pressure from above and you can do things to kind of alleviate that. Like, you know, before we were talking about something like site reliability, like, hey, what if, you know, we are able to put these tools up? I think I can get this done in an afternoon after lunch. And then this is something that you can go and show to your boss. And that's going to leave, you know, that's going to release a lot of the pressure on you. And so then hopefully that all kind of like trickles downstream, right? So, yeah, again, go go talk mm-hmm. to people. Find out what the bigger picture is. Yeah, I like it. And to, to just kind of pile on what you're saying, I mean, even if you're not demonstrating a solution, if you can at least demonstrate that you are measuring and understanding the solution, and then you can start to show the trend going the right way, you can just start with, hey, they're complaining about site reliability. And so we're going to put this tool in place that measures the number of hiccups or or non-responses or whatever that people are getting. And then the next step is is to start tracking where the issues are occurring. Yeah, or they may be some kind of history behind it too. Like uh, I remember once I was working on a project and there was this kind of history behind it where it was a tool that had already existed within the company for a long time. And they were kind of upgrading it. And one of the problems was that at some point, their database performance started to go way, way down. And I don't even remember why. It might have been they had too much data or old storage or whatever. So one of the first things I said was like, well, why don't we just go build some dashboards with Kibana? And that's going to always give you a real-time view into the into the database performance. And we'll, we'll set up some benchmarks and things like that so that you can see immediately, 
Like if that, if that's the thing you're really worried about, let's just sit down and, you know, and get that sorted out right now. And, you know, then suddenly the IT department was so much happier with me. So it was good things all around. That's really savvy, too, because then if there is an issue, they can effectively say, hey, we're going to go see what's on the dashboard, right? Instead of freaking out or it feels slow or some non-measurable, they can go and look and say, yeah, there's a problem and then come and actually, you know, start looking for a solution. All right. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Well, let's go ahead and do picks. I've I've got a hard stop in 15 minutes. So let's make Jonathan go first. He looks ready. Yeah, ready actually. I think this might be the first time I was actually ready before you said picks. So I'm going to start with a book that that relates to the topic today. It's called Team Topologies. It's by, if I remember here, uh, Matthew Skelton and Manuel Pais. The subtitle is Organizing Business and Technology Teams for Fast Flow. And it, it comes out of the DevOps movement, and it's basically how to organize teams. So a small disclaimer, it probably works best if you already have three to five teams or more. If you're really small, it probably won't really apply to you. But that's That's my first pick. My second pick on a lighter, less technical note is a sci-fi series that I actually haven't watched it for years, but I was reminded of it as my son pulled the DVDs out of the case this morning. It's called Lex, L-E-X-X. And sadly, I don't know where you can watch it. I don't think it's streaming anywhere legitimately. You can buy the DVDs on Amazon, but it's an old 1996 to about 2000 or 2002, maybe. I think it was produced in Canada, so it's not even Hollywood. It's a very low-budget, ridiculously bad quality, but but like charming, bad sci-fi series about a janitor who flies around at a giant mosquito trying to save the universe. It's not entirely family friendly. There's some adult humor. And I think if I recall, there's even some nudity in one of the scenes in, in season two. So probably don't show it to your children. <laughs> but uh, if that doesn't offend you personally, you might enjoy this show. Awesome. How about you, Will? What are your picks? So my first pick is I've been kind of browsing my way through a book called Cracking the Coding Interview, which is kind of odd for DevOps, but I've actually, in in reading it, found a lot of tie-ins back to DevOps because it's it's a book on, like, if you're applying for a software engineering position, you know, it goes through a bunch of the common whiteboard coding problems that some companies will ask for. But the relevance to DevOps for me has been so many times in my, in my experiences I've been pulled in to work with a team who's having performance issues. And so I end up going through their code with them. And so this has been kind of cool for me to review that and just kind of get a refresher on different ways to look at and understand code and kind of figure out which code's going to be performant and which code's going to lead you down to problems. So uh, the book is Cracking the Coding Interview by Gail Lockham McDowell. I think is how you pronounce that. Mm -hmm. And then my other pick is going to be 
based on the conversation that Jonathan and I had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about um, different projects to get started in DevOps. And I ended up going off and creating a YouTube video on that on my YouTube channel, DevOps for Developers. And it's 11 different projects that you can take on by yourself to start building some core DevOps skills. Awesome. Jillian, what are your picks? I think I'm going to keep going with my book picks. So my youngest daughter and I, who's seven, have started reading a book called Dragon Breath. And it's really cute. It's like, it's not a graphic novel and it's not a book. It's like somewhere in between where some of the pages are like, they look like a comic and then some of the pages are words and then some of the pages are like mostly words, but they have a picture. On kind of a related note, I'm really jealous of my kids that there's like all these like cool like comic books and graphic novels and there's so much like fantasy and sci-fi out there, at least way more than when I was a kid. It seemed like it was so much harder to find it. Um, so that's been a really fun read. We've been reading that. I think we'll keep reading the series. And then Bath and Body Works has started getting in all their Christmas scents and they had a big sale and they are my favorite like retail therapy store ever. So I'm just going to throw a plus one for that. If you get if like you will give them your phone number, they will send you little like coupons and stuff on your birthday, too, which I just love. I think every store should send me coupons on my birthday because I will absolutely shop there if they do. <laughs> Does AWS do that? No, but they should. Can you think about how great that would be if they did? Like, oh, it's your birthday. Here's a hundred dollars in credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to tease you about AWS from now on, Julian. Just so you know. Oh, you should. All that I really want is for you know somebody with a lot of money to come along and sponsor me. I don't have any integrity, guys. You know, I'll I'll be like, really <laughs> ornamental. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. I'm gonna jump in here and and share some picks as well. First of all, Jillian, I will send you some coupons too. Um, oh, thank you. My husband will be really <laughs> unhappy with you, but I will be happy with you. Yeah, there we go. So board game picks. One of my favorite games, and this is a game that's out of print. I'm sorry, folks. You can get it on eBay and uh, it costs considerably more than what I paid for it. But I get together with a bunch of guys and we play board games every month. And one of our go-to games is called Shadow Hunters. And effectively, you know, you have shadows and you have hunters. It's kind of like Werewolf, except it doesn't suck. <laughs> and so, and the, the reason that Werewolf sucks in my opinion is because there's you don't have anything to go on right so if you play with people you know well then you can bs them real well and so then you basically just guess and you kill off all the wrong people and and so that sucks and if you don't know them well you can't pick their tells and so you still wind up killing all the wrong people so you can't win but the way that this works is you have like weapons weapon cards and there are some defensive cards and then the green cards give you clues as to who the other players are. So you're all assigned a character. Some are shadows, some are hunters, and some are neutral. And you all have a, a win condition, right? So the the shadows and hunters are the hunters are all dead, or the shadows are all dead, right? Uh, the neutrals have their own win conditions, and if they win before or at any, you know, if their win condition is ever true, then the game's over because they won. But sometimes their win condition, you know, coincides with the hunters or the shadows winning. Anyway, so it, there's a little bit of deductive reasoning about it. And then, yeah, you can steal equipment cards. You can attack other players. It's it's pretty fun. And when you're when you when your damage matches your damage counter on your character card, you're gone. You don't get to play anymore. You get to watch the game play out. But we really enjoy it. We can usually blow breeze through a game in 20 minutes to half hour. 
I think the longest we ever have a game go anymore is 45 minutes. And that's if you're down to like two people just duking it out and they can't seem to really damage each other without the other person healing or something crazy like that. So anyway, I'm going to pick it. It's a ton of fun. Like I said, you're probably looking at getting it on eBay because it's out of print. But anyway, it's one of my favorites. So I'm going to pick it. I will see if there's an Amazon link, but don't hold your breath. And then as far as everything else goes, um, I am going to be running a pre-launch Black Friday sale starting about November 14th for Top End Devs. And it's going to have courses on some of the stuff we talked about here with the soft skills and leadership and stuff like that. And then I'm also working on recruiting as many other authors as I can to bring courses to the platform. So if you're interested in authoring, you can go to topendevs.com slash author. If you want coaching, like if you're trying to get ahead on your career now, and you don't want to wait for the right course to come out, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. And yeah, beyond that, yeah, I, I guess I have one more pick. And this is a tool that I'm using to set things up for top end devs. I'm going to set up a Slack server. I think I'm going to allow people to get on it for free. And then there will be channels for people who are members, right? So that they can see when courses are coming out or when we're having events that are members only or things like that and chat about events that are members only. But uh, anyway, one of the tools that I'm using there is called Campfire. It's campfire.so. You can get on the waiting list. I found a way to jump the line because I know somebody. (laughs) But it's really great. And what it does, if you're setting up a Slack server, it'll ask you questions when people get in or you can just trigger like a quick set of questions, right? So it's, hey, have you done this? Or hey, are you interested in this? Are you interested in live events? Are you interested in... So you can you can kind of survey people in a couple of minutes and kind of get a feel for where people are at with it. It, it also allows you to reach out specifically to specific people or groups of people within your Slack server. Anyway, it's, it's really cool. So uh, that's campfire.so. And yeah, that's that's my pick, my other pick. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much it. I usually ask the guest, you know, to share theirs, but I, I was like, oh, no guest. So thanks for coming, everybody. We'll wrap up here. And until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.